here at Genesis Church. We're glad that you decided to join us. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, thanks, Gin Kids. Thanks for joining us in the service. Thanks for dancing. Thanks for making noise. Thanks for bringing the party. Gin Kids brings the party. Danielle Baum, everybody. She brings the party. Hey, uh, when you walked in, Hopefully you received one of these. This is our uh, What's Happening piece for the month of November, and there's a lot of cool stuff on there I'm going to refer to in a minute. If you're a guest or visitor, I'd love for you to grab a connection card out of the seat in front of you and fill that out. And you can do one of two things with it. You can uh, drop it in the offering when it comes by in just a minute, uh, or if it's your first time here, if you've never filled out a connection card, we have a gift for you, and we'd love for you to uh, fill this out, give us any contact information that you can. It's a little hazy in here, isn't it? Can you guys see me Okay. I feel like I need my fog lights on up here. Um, You can uh, drop it in the offering when it comes by in a minute, or if you're a guest or visitor, please take it to the info hub right by the exit doors. We've got a gift for you for being here today. So if you'd give us any information you're willing to share, we'd love to give you a gift. Uh, If you got this when you walked in, uh, hopefully you did. If you didn't, please grab one on your way out, hang it on your refrigerator so you can remember what's going on uh, for the month of November and some of December at Genesis Church. Two things I want to draw your attention to. Now, first of all, when we do baptisms, like I said, we did 11 today across both of our campuses. Uh, As June mentioned in her testimony, uh, we don't baptize uh, babies or infants or young kids. We believe the Bible teaches that baptism is an act of obedience. It's done in response to what God's done in our lives. And so um, we instead do something we call child dedications. And that's coming up in a couple weeks on November 23rd. Uh, We've got child dedications coming up. We'd love for you, your family, if you've got a young child, a, a, a newborn, a baby, baby, an infant, a toddler, um, we'd love for you to be a part of that. If you want to say, I want to raise my child to know and love Jesus, and I want the church to help me with that, then we'd love for you to be a part of that in two weeks on November the 23rd. We have an information session next week on the 16th uh, between services, and so uh, you can sign up for that on their connection card, uh, or you can do it at genesischurch.me and let us know you want to have your children dedicated and you want to be a part of that service. The second thing I want to show you is just, I know it's a ways out, um, but we're having a Christmas Eve service this year, and uh, we haven't always done that. Yeah, so if, you're, if you are new to Genesis or if you're just visiting today, you might go, what's the big deal? Doesn't every church celebrate Christmas Eve? Well, no, we haven't done it in probably six or seven years, but at this campus... At 4.30 and 6 p.m., we're going to have two Christmas Eve services, identical Christmas Eve services. And uh, so as you go meet with family over the next week or two, you're celebrating the Thanksgiving holidays, you're getting together, you're talking about, hey, what are we going to do for Christmas? Uh, Try to leave one of those two slots open uh, to come celebrate the birth of our king uh, right here at Genesis Church in Carmel with us. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Hey, uh, we get to celebrate a lot of things this morning. We celebrated uh, six baptisms, or five baptisms here, six at our Noblesville campus. Uh, We celebrate the worship uh, through music, and we get to celebrate in our giving as well. And so I want to invite our host team, and they're going to come forward and take up the offering right now, and we celebrate that. While they do that, I just wanted to remind you that your giving allows us to do many, many things. And and a lot of that happens right here in this building. It happens with people finding their way back to God and getting baptized. But it also happens in uh, faraway places that we don't always think about. And uh, I just want to remind you, one of our great ministry partners is Nehemiah Vision Ministries in Haiti. Uh, We've got a team of about 15 people headed down there in February uh, in just a couple months to go do some work there. But we've got two trips a year. We're always planning those. And so if if God's been working on you, on your heart, about maybe taking an international mission trip, that may be something you want to consider. I just want to show you some of the work that NVM is doing down in Haiti. Take a look. Thank you. 
Well, like I said, our, our trip in February is full, um, but we are already looking forward to July when we'll be sending another team down there uh, that we have not even started promoting that yet. But if the Lord's been working in your heart about taking a short-term mission trip, um, what a great place to go. It's not that long of a flight, but you get to get about as far away from the United States uh, way of living as you can. And in July, we host a, an English camp for the kids in the village down there. It's a great time, a lot of fun. And so uh, maybe you need to be praying about that. Maybe you need to be uh, saving money for that, or maybe you need to be talking with your friends about, hey, what if we all just took a mission trip together? Instead of going to that Caribbean vacation, or, well, this is a Caribbean vacation. Instead of going to that Caribbean vacation or going to Vegas together, or instead of, uh, you know, going to the wine and canvas place or whatever, what if we took a mission trip together this year? Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, What great way to build community. And so keep your eyes open for what's going on uh, with Haiti coming up in July. Um, when, uh, When our daughter Grace was born, Uh, We had the agony of trying to pick out a name for her. Uh, Those of you who are parents, you can probably relate to this. Uh, The countless hours arguing about, talking about, discussing, thinking about a name for your child. Um, I remember uh, we were on vacation. We were sitting on our hotel bed, and I had the whole baby book that I was reading A to Z uh, to my wife. We didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl, so we were going over both. And you start to think about weird things when you're thinking about names for babies, right? You think about like how it goes with your last name, right? Uh, my last name's Wallen, so we weren't going to have a Willie or a Wanda or anything like that that was going to make it sound silly. Uh, you think about the rhythm and how it goes with their middle name. You know, most parents want uh, three or four syllables for the first and middle name, right? And so you think about, well, if we have this as our first name, we can't, we have to have a short middle name, or if we have a short first name, we have to have a longer middle name, right? We think about uh, what the nickname will be. So I'm going to name my son Andrew Jackson. We're going to call him Jack, right? But I, that's what I want to name him. Or you think about what the kids will tease them about. You ever think about that when you named your child? Well, no, we can't name him that because then they'll say this on the schoolyard, right? You think about the meaning of the name itself, right? That's what the baby book has. This name means that. Well, my daughter, uh, Audrey, her name means noble strength. Well, that's what we wanted to call her. She's noble strength. You know, you think about, um, I'm sure you can all relate to this. You think about the people you knew growing up that had that same name, right? Like, uh, uh, no offense, but if, if we had a boy, he was never, ever going to be named Bobby, right? And just because of the people I knew growing up. He was, she was never going to be named Denise just because of the people I knew growing up. You know, like, you know, he's the one that gave me my first wedgie, you know, or she stuffed me in a locker, or she's the one that broke my heart. And so we're never going to name our child after that person. We give a lot of credence to a name, don't we? Give a lot of importance uh, to a name. In fact, I was reading this week about a phenomenon, scientific phenomenon, known as nominative determinism. Have you ever heard of this? You know what this is? It's the idea that your name can in some way determine what you do in life. And so, for example, example there's at least one scientific study that suggests that men with the name Dennis are far more likely than the general population to become a dentist. Did you know that? It's true. There's a scientific study that, that study. I don't know who funded this study, okay? But um, even before I knew the name for this concept, I kind of understood the idea behind it because when I was a kid, my dad and I used to watch a lot of baseball, and there was a, an umpire in Major League Baseball named Bruce Ball. And I always thought, well, he was determined to be an umpire because his name is Ball, right? And he always called balls and strikes, and he called more balls on my team than I thought he should. And so um, I found some more this week. I thought you might appreciate these. There is a meteorologist for WABC in New York City named Amy Freeze. A great name for a meteorologist, right? Her, uh, uh, her counterpart there in New York uh, is named Storm Field. Storm is a meteorologist. His dad was a meteorologist and loved weather, so he named his son Storm. 
there's another meteorologist in Charlotte, North Carolina. Cam, you'll love this. Uh, his name is Larry Sprinkle. He's a meteorologist. His name's Sprinkle. Isn't that great? I love that. Um, Dr. Russell Brain was a well-known neurologist and brain surgeon uh, from London. Dr. Stephanie Payne is a dentist, as is Dr. Mark Pullen and Dr. Lee Pullen. And my favorite, Dr. Randall Toothaker is a dentist. Dr. Scott Pett is a veterinarian, as is Dr. Kim Furr. Prince Fielder, you probably know, is a baseball player. Scott Speed is a race car driver. And the Russian track and field team features star hurdler Marina Stepanova. A great name for a hurdler, huh? And how ironic is that when one of the world's greatest scientists was Albert Einstein. The guy was such a genius. What an Einstein, right? That's a joke. I'm sorry. The idea behind this concept, nominative determinism, is that your name, something that you're given at birth, is going to determine what happens for the rest of your life. That your name takes root, right, deep within your mind, deep within your soul, and it dictates your future. Well, fortunately, we know that's not true. We know that because all of us, uh, many of us, have had a time in our life where we have been able to uh, overcome our past and overcome our circumstances. We know that because we, we saw it this morning uh, right here in this tub uh, through the five people uh, who were baptized this week. We know that as I read their testimonies this week, I saw some of them had names like disobedient, like da- in danger, like lost and wandering. Well, in Isaiah 62, God speaks to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, and he says this. He says, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. So for those who were baptized this morning, for all of us who are in Christ, you've been given a new name. And maybe for you, your name now is obedient. It's, it's safe. It's found. It's purposeful. Your name is his. And that's what we've been talking about in this series called Identity Crisis. We've been talking about the power of identity and how if you've ever made that decision to give up control of your life and, and turn control over to Jesus, then your identity is in Christ. We've, we said that your identity is the truest thing about you, right? Your, you being in Christ is the truest thing about you. It's no longer your mistakes or your failures or your sufferings or your past or your family of origin. The most important thing about you is that what Jesus says about you. And that's huge. It's the foundation on which every other aspect of your life should be built. And it's so important that the writer of Ephesians, a man named Paul, takes the first three chapters just reminding us of this identity in Christ. And then the last three chapters are all about how to live out of that identity. And so if you were here last week, you know, we talked about some of those distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus. And we talked about uh, that if you're living as an imitator of God, as Paul invites us to do in Ephesians 5, that there are some certain things that you shouldn't do. But then we also said that don't just get hung up on the things you shouldn't do. There are also things that you should do. As an imitator of Christ, as an imitator of God, there are things that we should do. I mean, let's be known as a church, okay, as a people, not for what we're against, but what we're for, right? Let's be known as imitators of God, uh, as living like children of light, as Paul invited us to do. Always ready and willing to tell people about the hope we found in Jesus. But as you probably know, it's, it's one thing to want to live as an imitator of God. It's quite another to actually go and live that way. In fact, I'm guessing for many of you in this room, if you were here last week, you probably left here Sunday with every intention of going to make a change in your life. You were going to go work on your marriage. 
You were going to go uh, invest in your relationship with your child. You were going to end a relationship in your life or stop a habit or quit using harsh language or stop drinking or end a relationship or forgive someone or tell somebody about Jesus. But, but then Monday happened, right? And doesn't Monday just have a way of really harshing your mellow a little bit? I mean, isn't Monday just really... In fact, I have this theory that nothing great... In the history of the world, I don't think anything great has ever happened on a Monday, I, I just, nobody's been able to disprove me so far, but I think that's true. So, so why does this happen? You know, what about this? If, if we have this good news, if our identity is in Christ, why is it so hard to change? Well, why do we still suffer? Why is life still hard? Why, why do marriages end and people get sick? Why is there still fighting and pain and death, even for those of us who are in Christ? Well, because this is the truth, and this is what we want to talk about today. We're at war. We are at war. And Paul is going to remind us in the passage we're covering today that we are not at war with other people. All right? We're not at war with our spouse. We're not at war with our kids. We certainly shouldn't be fighting against, if we're Christians, we shouldn't be fighting against other Christians. But as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, if you have your Bibles, you might turn them there to Ephesians 6. Uh, The the verses will be on the side screens here too. But if you want to grab one of these Bibles around you, if you don't have yours with you, you can do that. It's on page uh, 813 in this Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take this one with you. We want you to have that. It's our gift to you. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says this. He says, for our struggle... (laughs) Did you feel the struggle this week? Anybody have a struggle this week? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says we are at war. Every Christian, every every man, every woman, every student in here, for all of us are in Christ, we are at war, and we have a real enemy. We have an enemy. You have a very real enemy who doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to seek God first. He doesn't want you to pray or read scripture. He doesn't want you to believe that you are at war. But the truth is that there is a very real spiritual realm that's every bit as real as the tangible realm that we live in that we we can't see or feel or touch, but it's every bit as real as what we can see and feel and touch. And when we experience pain or misfortune or difficult times, while those sometimes happen, okay, as a result of our choices, there's no doubt, they're often a a result of the battle being fought in the spiritual realm. I mean, every marriage is in a battle. After your relationship with Christ, your marriage is the most important relationship you have. And so the enemy will often use your marriage... Use your spouse to get a foothold in your life. Because he understands that marriage is the best, I believe, the best evangelical tool we have as Christians. I mean, think about that. If every Christian marriage was loving, just like Scripture says it should be, if every husband would look to the New Testament example of how to lead his family well, if every wife would look at the New Testament example of how to be a a, a Christian wife... um, Every non-Christian couple in the world would look at our marriages and say, what do they have that we don't? You know, why, why does he love his wife like that? Why does she treat her husband like that? Why don't they talk about each other behind their back? Why don't they fight like we do? I mean, I want what they have. Well, your enemy knows that. He sees that. And so he's going to try to get himself in the middle of your marriage and get you fighting against one another because if you're fighting against one another, you're not fighting against him. 
We, we, we kind of skipped over Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, the end of Ephesians 5, which is all about the biblical role of husbands and wives in marriage, by the way. And we did that intentionally because next week we're starting a new series called Dear True Love. We'll tell you a little bit more about that later. It's a marriage series. And on November 23rd, in just a couple weeks, we're going to circle back around to Ephesians 5 and talk about, dive deeply into that issue. But in the meantime, you should know that when you and your spouse have a disagreement, an argument, a fight, a, a, a loving dialogue, whatever you like to call them, that your battle is not against flesh and blood, that your battle is against the rulers, powers, and authorities of the dark world. But the great news for us in all of this is, okay, we're at war, we have an enemy, but the great news for you is this, we have a king. And we have a king that is the king of kings, in fact, in Jesus. And sometimes uh, when life gets hard for us, it's easy for us to forget that. We forget that we're in Christ. We can lose hope. We, we can blame ourselves. We can blame God. We can blame our, our spouse. We can blame our parents. We can blame our kids. But we almost never, almost never blame our enemy. We almost never look at the root cause behind the issue. And one of the keys to winning these battles is understanding your enemy. I was a, a bit of a nerd in high school. I know you probably find that hard to believe. Um, but I, I read in high school a book by, the, by a man named Sun Tzu, called The Art of War. It was a, uh, Sun Tzu was an incredible Chinese general, art of this very, art, author of this very influential book about military strategy. And he wrote this in The Art of War. He wrote this. He says, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. I mean, just think about that. Think about the battles in your life. If you know your enemy and you know yourself, you can win every one of those battles. And, and, and we've spent the last seven weeks, you getting to know you right? Getting to know who you are, reminding you of your identity in Christ. So I just want to spend a few minutes getting to know your enemy because I think that's important. First of all, your enemy has a name. His name is Satan. If you're not a Christian, you may not believe that. Scripture is very clear that Satan is real and that he's an enemy to God and all of God's people. Now, throughout Scripture, he's also referred to as the devil, the dragon, the serpent, the enemy, the tempter, the deceiver, the murderer, the father of lies, and the accuser, and the evil one. He's not some cute creature in a red costume uh, with a cape and horns. He's not the harmless devil who went down to Georgia to have a fiddle-off with Johnny. All right? He's also not the hapless devil. We also see, often see pictured in uh, far side cartoons like this one here. Um, that uh, I just don't think we're getting through that guy. That's not the devil that Scripture paints a picture of. Satan yields real power on earth. He's, he's more powerful than we are as humans. The Apostle Paul called him prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, and Jesus called him the ruler of this world. As far as what he looks like, well, you wouldn't know him to see him. Okay, certainly you don't expect him to announce his presence. You, you won't say anytime, I'm in a spiritual battle, I know, because I know that Satan's uh, acting in my life because he's more clever than that. All right, 2 Corinthians 11 reminds us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And scripture says that Satan was the most beautiful angel, that if you saw him, he would be beautiful. He would be someone that you'd never expect to harm you. But still, quite a few of us don't believe he exists. In fact, I saw one recent poll this week that said 43% of Americans don't believe in the devil. That's a far greater percentage than people who don't believe in God or don't believe in Jesus. So that means there's a wide range of Christians who don't believe that the devil actually exists. And that's part of his plan. If you're not looking for an enemy, you'll blame yourself. You'll blame your husband or your wife or you'll blame God or you'll blame your kids or you'll blame your friends or whoever is a convenient scapegoat. 
I love what author C.S. Lewis said about this idea of the devil and his henchmen. He said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he's saying some people don't believe in Satan at all, and some people see him behind every rock. But but the truth is somewhere in between. Yes, he's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. I mean, we see in Scripture that God has allowed him to exist for now and given him uh, even some influence in the world, but his power is limited. We we see an example of that in the book of Job where God says, uh, you do whatever you want, but don't harm my servant Job. Satan has no power to go and harm Job. His power is restrained. It's limited. So he's a powerful enemy, but we also know he's a defeated enemy. The war's already won. Jesus won it on the cross. And then three days later, when he conquered death and he rose from the grave, he proved that the enemy has no power over the children of God. And in fact, the book of Revelation tells of a day when Satan will finally be destroyed. And it's not some long epic battle that you go to the movie theater and watch for three hours before the end scene comes. Instead, the the, the battle is one verse long. Revelations 20.10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. That's just the first half of the verse, actually. It doesn't even last a whole verse. It's half of a verse. I think the most important takeaway is that Satan's power is too big for us as humans. It's too much. We, we can't overcome it, but it's infinitely smaller than God's power. And that's why it's so important for us to lean on God's power in the battle. Because while the war has been won and while the good guys win in the end, the truth is that the battle rages on. And the battle, as you probably already know, is very real. It's like um, if you DVR a football game or your favorite TV show, but you're watching it and you're nervous while you're watching it, and so you decide to fast forward to the end to see how it ends, right? You ever do that? See how it ends, and then you go back and watch the whole thing. So while you know how it ends, the battle's still very real in the middle, isn't it? There's, there's still points scored. There are still people kicked out of, did, don't win the mirror ball. I don't know. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, whatever it is. There's still people that win and lose. There are still casualties in the battle, but we know how it ends. But the middle's still real. The battle's still real. And so while Satan's power is limited, he uses some pretty clever battle tactics to fight us. One of them is that he has developed his own trinity all right, to fight against God. Satan doesn't have any original ideas on his own. He has to steal them all from God. And so Satan has developed this trinity. I call it the unholy trinity. It's Satan, this world, and your flesh. And the three of them work together to tear us away from God. It's a way that he can have some control and some influence over your actions. He, it's a way that he works to take away your new identity, to take away your new name, to, to get you to forget about that and to have you believing that you can find complete fulfillment in the flesh. And he, he'd love to get you believing that everything you need is present in this world. He doesn't have to strike hard as long as he can strike often and keep reminding you of that. In fact, again, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, captures this so well. If you haven't read the Screw Tape Letters, it's a f- series of fictional letters uh, from uh, a man named Screw Tape, Uncle Screw Tape, who is a, a demon. He's one of Satan's top henchmen, and he's writing these letters to his nephew Wormwood. Wormwood is an aspiring demon, and uh, 
If you ever want keen insight as to how your enemy works, I highly recommend this book, even though it's fiction. It's, it's really insightful. But Screwtape writes this. He writes, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So, if our enemy is a great deceiver, he's the father of lies. We, We can't recognize him. We can't fight him on our own. How do we fight? Well, as we wrap up today, I want us to see this great insight that Paul gives us into fighting against your enemy. And it's in Ephesians 6, um, again, page 813 in this Bible, Ephesians 6, um, verse 10 through 20. We'll read that uh, together. It'll be on the side screens here. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He says this, verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So how do we fight him? Paul reminds us first to be strong in the Lord. That God needs to strengthen us. That our strength is not going to be enough. The Holy Spirit needs to do this for us. I mean, even Jesus himself, if you think about this, Jesus himself, if you read the New Testament, he went out into the wilderness 40 days to be tempted by uh, Satan. And Scripture tells us that he was led by the Spirit. That, That all through that process, he was led by the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to remind us that God has already given us everything we need for the battle of heads. Battle ahead. He says, if you are in Christ, you have every protection, every defense, every weapon that you need for the battle that you're about to fight. As I, he says, I just quickly, I want to show us, I want us to see the full armor that Paul says we're supposed to wear. But as I do, let's note that Paul says you need to put on the full armor of God. All right, as we go down this list, If you see something on this list that you don't put on on a regular basis, if you're missing one, you need to know that you're going into battle unprotected and unprepared. You you need to add that to your armor. You need to add to your weaponry so that you can be set for the battle. I've put these in your message notes in the little card you got when you walked in. So if you want to follow along, you can do that. The first one is this. It's the belt of truth. Scripture tells us Satan is the father of lies. It's what he's good at. It's what he does. If you believe his lies, you will disbelieve the truth that comes from Scripture, that comes from God. You know, the truth is found in Scripture. It always points to the glory of Jesus. So when you hear a voice in your head, you need to compare it 
to what Scripture says, what the truth is. When someone, even a friend, gives you a piece of advice for what to do in a certain situation, for how to live your life, or whatever it may be, you need to compare that to the truth. You need to have the belt of truth around your waist. You need to know the truth if you're going to win the battle. You need to believe the truth, and you have to share the truth, even if it costs you something. The second one is the breastplate of righteousness. If you're an armor expert, you probably know the breastplate protects the chest, right? It protects the heart. It's all about guarding your heart with the righteousness of Jesus. You know, the enemy is like a fisherman who baits his hook with whatever he thinks will attract his prey, right? And so for this world, it might be sex. It could be money. It could be power. It could be fame. It could be comfort. What, whatever, thing, whatever thing it is that he thinks could potentially make us take our eyes off God. And he teams up with the world and with our flesh to make that happen, right? His goal is to get us to take the bait before we ever see the hook. Because once he's got the hook in us, all right, he's in control. But any time that you say no to sin and yes to Jesus, you're guarding your heart. You're wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, number three is this. It's the shoes of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. It's, it's what Jesus has done for you. It's the story of how he saved you. It's the story of how he rescued you from whatever you were caught up in, how he reached down into that pit and drug you out. It's, it's how he gave you a new name and a new identity. And, it's, and, and we saw that uh, this morning through the five baptisms we had here at both of our services, these people that, that God reached into their life, wherever they were, and pulled them out and drug them out of something. And that's their story. That's the gospel for them is the story of what God did in their life. And, and it's no coincidence, I think, that Paul says, your feet are fitted with the gospel of peace because this is an active weapon. Right, it's a part of your armor where you're, you're walking, you're out telling people, look, if you are in Christ, God has done some amazing things in your life, is doing some amazing things in your life. You need to go and tell somebody about that. Because no, the more you tell people your story, the less likely you are to forget yourself what God is doing in your life. But the more you tell your story, the more likely you are to remember that you are in Christ. Uh, the fourth thing is this, it's the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Scripture says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. It says that what you believe, what you have faith in, informs how you live. It guides how you live. If you have no faith, you'll fear the enemy because he has power. But the good news is if you are in Christ, the worst, the worst the enemy can do is give you death. Now, if you're not in Christ, you probably go, well, that sounds pretty bad. That sounds like a bad thing, but it can only, he can only kill you on this earth, and you don't have to fear death anymore because if you're in Christ, you know that Christ has conquered death. Now, think about it. On the, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Scripture tells us this three times in the four Gospels, I think, that, that uh, there was a man named Peter who was a close friend of Jesus, and he said, I will never deny you. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so Peter goes out and he's watching as Jesus is arrested and captured and taken from place to place. And, and what happens? Uh, somebody sees Peter and he says, uh, she, she says, hey, that guy was with him. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then somebody else sees him. He says, I don't, I don't know the man. And then somebody else says to him, he says, you're a Galilean. You were with that guy. And he says, hey, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I've never seen this guy in my life. And then he realizes what he's done. But he was so afraid that he was going to be killed 
He knew Jesus was going to be killed, and he didn't want to suffer the same fate, and so he was afraid. But then what happens is, after Jesus is killed and, and is raised from the dead, and he reappears to the disciples, including Peter, and Peter sees him, what we see is Peter becomes one of the most fearless people we see in the entire Bible. Why? Well, because while he was afraid of death before, he now knows that Jesus conquered death. In his whole life, Jesus told him, that I was going to be the guy that overcomes the world. And now Peter knows. He says, I don't have anything to be afraid of. He never feared death again because he had faith that death was defeated. The fifth thing is this. It's the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. The helmet protects your head. All right. So think about this as, as protecting your brain, guarding your brain, guarding your mind. When, when thoughts come into your head, like I'm not good enough to be a Christian or... You know, I shouldn't get baptized yet because my life's not cleaned up or I'll tell somebody my story as soon as I don't sin anymore. You know, that's where you need the helmet of salvation. And if you have a voice in your head that says you're worthless, that is not the voice of God because God doesn't believe that about you. God thought you were worth so much that he gave up his son for you. You need to remember that you're not saved by your actions but by the grace of God. It's a gift from God, the only thing through the death of Jesus on the cross that can save you. God did that for you. Because you were worth so much to him. The sixth thing is the the sword of scripture. The sword of scripture. God's word is a sword. It's an offensive weapon. It's not something that needs to be defended like some ancient artifact. It needs to be wielded. It needs to be held high in power. It's read the word, believe the word, proclaim the word, hold God to his promises. It's a cutting sword. But it's also not a club, right? You're not supposed to beat people over the head with it, right? It's a cutting weapon, but passionately live what the Bible commands. Those are the armor. Those are the weapons that Paul calls out. There's six of them there. But I think there's two more things in this passage as we wrap up our study of Ephesians here this morning that are really critical in the battle. The first one is prayer. You know, Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me that I would have the right words. You know, continue to pray for me. It's, it's so critical. This constant communication with our Heavenly Father is key. I mean, your Heavenly Father loves you. He's crazy about you. He wants to spend time with you every day. If you need any proof of this, just look at the example of Jesus. As you read the story of Jesus and how he lived his life, every time he had a big decision to make, every time there was something big coming up in his life, he went out on his own and prayed and spent time with his Heavenly Father. Scripture reminds us of that. So when you feel the urge to sin... Why don't you pray instead? You, you, you feel like you're going to be worried about something? Scripture says pray instead. If you need strength for the battle, you should pray. Pray for yourself. Have other people pray for you, just as Paul does. If you have a situation in your life, let me ask you. The first thing I will ask you when you come to me and you say, I've got this problem in my life, I will ask you, how much have you prayed about it? And I don't want you to answer to me. You don't, I don't want you to lie to me and tell me I've been praying about it all the time. Ask that yourself. Like, really, how much have I been praying about this? So we need to pray. The second thing is this. We need to stand firm. At least four times in these short 10 verses, Paul tells us to stand firm. Take a stand. Be strong. Not in your own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. The the phrase Paul's using here is a military term. He's saying, hold the line. Don't don't give up your position. Don't don't compromise. Don't retreat. He says, "But, but lean on Jesus. Use the armor he's given you to fight. When you feel the troubles of the world closing in on you, Paul says, stand firm in Christ. When you feel like your marriage is in trouble, 
Stand firm in Christ. When you don't understand why you feel so lonely all the time, stand firm in Christ. Whatever you're facing, sickness, discouragement, family fights, job loss, financial troubles, temptation to sin, whatever it is, Paul says, do not compromise. Put on your armor. Reach down, grab a handful of dirt, rub it into your hands. Get ready to fight the battle and stand firm. You can't stand on your own. You can stand in Christ who gave himself up for you, who has the power to overcome the enemy, who defeated death. As I was thinking about how to end today, I knew that I wanted to pray for you because I know that there's people in this room that are feeling the very real effects of being in a battle. Um, But I didn't want to just pray in a generic prayer like we sometimes do and I really wanted to pray over you. And so I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little uncomfortable for you, but I hope you'll play along. People in the first service did, and it was uh, the, the Holy Spirit really moved in this room in an incredible way. But if you are in a battle right now, if you feel it, if you know that you're in a spiritual battle, I would love for you to stand uh, right where you are. You don't have to come up here, but just stand, in, stand at your seat, and I would love to pray for you. Right now, if there's anybody in the battle, if you would stand, thank you for that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you very much. Okay, I want to pray for you guys, but here's what I want to do. Um, if you're a prayer, if you're comfortable praying, I would love for you to get um, near one of these people around, uh, that's right around you and just put your hand on them, put their hand, your hand on their shoulder, pray over them if you would do that. Anybody wants to do that? If you would get around these people, I'd love for everybody to have at least one hand on them. If you can pray, if you're somebody who likes to pray. Thank you for that. Let me pray. Everybody pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you and we are so thankful for your word, which empowers us, which uh, gives us a reminder to stand strong and to stand firm. And God, sometimes when we are in the battle, it is so hard to stand. We just want to go down on our knees and, and stay there, God. But we know, we, we hear from your word, we proclaim this morning that you have given us the power to stand. And so those of us who are fighting a very real enemy, God, we proclaim this morning in the name of Jesus that he has no power over our lives. He's not welcome in our lives. He's not welcome in our church. He's not welcome in our marriages or our families or our workplaces. And God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would remind us of that this week, that that you would tell the enemy that he has lost. He has been defeated. That God, in the name of Jesus, you've overcome our enemy. I just pray if you're able now, everyone, if you'll stand to your feet right now as I pray for all of us. God, I thank you so much that you've given us your word as a sword, as an offensive weapon, that you've given us all of these pieces of armor that we can fight and we can have great confidence that even in the midst of battle that we are fighting an enemy who's defeated, who's desperate, and who loses in the end, God. But even now, while the battle is very real, will you help us to feel your presence, help us to rest in your spirit, help us to rely on Jesus for the strength we need to stand. If you're here today and You don't know that strength of Jesus. You've never made that decision to to put your life under the control of Jesus Christ. You can do that this morning. If you want that power, that strength to stand, you can pray this with me. Just say, God, I need you in my life. I'm tired of fighting this battle alone. I need your son, Jesus, to come and take control. God, send your Holy Spirit to live inside of me and to guide me, to protect me, and to comfort me. If you've done that, if you pray that, welcome to the family of God. You have a new name. You have a new identity in Christ. 
God, we thank you so much for the boldness of people to take their stand this morning. As we come to you and worship through music, we just proclaim that we will stand in your name. Amen.